Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm your host, Diana Baudet, and joining me today are education attorneys Matt Plain and Pat Hennessy to talk about the legalities of homeschooling and learning pods. Welcome, Matt and Pat. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Hey, Diana. Thanks for having us. Sure. So as a result of COVID, there was a lot of discussion around this summer, and I'm sure the discussion is continuing as schools open and close. But there was a lot of discussion around homeschooling and alternative learning arrangements in order for students to stay out of school and be in closer knit units. And also, I think, as an alternative for some educators that weren't comfortable going into the school. So I'm sure this trend has raised a lot of questions in terms of the law. We've seen a lot in the news about sort of the social and ethical discussion around homeschooling. But I'm hoping that today's conversation can enlighten us in terms of if this is something a parent or an educator decides to do, what exactly do they need to do to legally follow all the rules to give students a valid education? So what we've seen since the pandemic and, and more frequently since the beginning of this school year is, is first an uptick in homeschooling. In homeschooling generally, at least in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, is when a parent or guardian makes an application to the school committee in the city or town where they reside and they make an application to take over the learning of their child. And in that instance, if a school committee in the city or town where the child resides approves the homeschooling plan, then the student actually withdraws uh, from the district or from the local education agency. And then their, their new form of education is at home uh, with a parent or with a guardian. So we've seen a significant uptick in that. Uh, we've also seen instances where schools are not going back full in person. So whereas pre-March of 2020, folks or kids went to school Monday through Friday, unless there was a holiday from 8.30 to 3.30, now they may be going to school on Monday and Tuesday, and then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are participating in a distance learning component of their education. Or the school, given the given the spread of COVID within a particular community or the ability of that city or town to manage it, they may not be going back full in-person learning or in-person learning at all. And the entire education program of a city or town may be conducted via distance learning. In those instances, students that participate in distance learning, they're still enrolled in their district or their local education agency. They're just participating in many instances from home. In th those instances, different than homeschooling, those students, again, still enrolled. What we're seeing is, in some instances, parents, because they're working, uh, because they actually have to leave the house, or they're working remotely so can't manage their child's learning or oversee their child's learning or keep them on task, are bringing other folks from their maybe neighborhood, maybe from their their child's class or some folks that they're comfortable being around and they're participating in learning together or at the same time so that they can have a social component uh, in other instances. So there's an actual adult that's there to help guide or help keep people on task or mind people. In those instances, again, still enrolled in the district, 
but they have some other adult or responsible person that's there to make sure that they're learning. So is that a learning pod? It could be. It could be called a learning pod. We're also seeing instances where folks are withdrawing from a traditional school, like a city or town's municipal school system, or from another local education agency, like a charter school or some other school of choice. And they're enrolling in either a private school uh, or a program that they're doing together with multiple other families or students, and they're hiring educators to facilitate the learning. In those instances, you are likely going beyond homeschooling. You're certainly not participating in your district's distance learning program, and you're more likely doing something that's akin to private school education. In those instances, there may be other hoops you need to jump through in addition to just getting consent from your district to start a homeschool program, in all likelihood, you may have to go to an authorizer or in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, go to your school committee with a plan for that private school. But I've done a lot of the talking, so I'll let Pat jump in on (laughs) things she's seen. Yeah, well, in Pennsylvania, we've seen the the same trend. I mean, we've we've seen parents really flee the traditional public schools because they, they generally are not in session because they're you know, dealing with the COVID issues, pretty much every single public school district started out the school year in a distance remote learning mod. Now we, we've seen like uh, over the last few weeks where our districts are returning to a hybrid model. By and large, school districts did not react and adapt well to distance learning. Again, you know, looking at it in terms of it's a lot easier to turn a U-boat than it is an aircraft carrier. So it's very difficult for a lot of these larger districts to roll out pandemic learning in a, in a great way. There's been so much fluctuation in terms of leadership in Pennsylvania where, you know, should we open, should we not open? The plan essentially at the end of June that we were all supposed to open and they sort of reversed course in July. And that really, to be fair, did not allow for a lot of real great pivoting for larger districts. So we've seen a real exodus of, of families now in Pennsylvania, we, we do have a, a large cyber charter school component. So most of those families did end up in those those types of situations. Again, a lot easier for them to get equipment, an already established curriculum, an already established learning model. So we've seen enrollment in those cyber charter schools increase by thousands. I mean, some schools that started out with enrollments of 3,000, they're now looking at twelve to 15,000 kids enrolled. Wow. And Pennsylvania's always had a robust homeschooling statute. Um, so we've seen a lot of families opt for that, but we are seeing also the rise of micro schools, learning pods, the same types of things and how folks are trying to leverage those. We see daycare centers and religious institutions also entering the fray in that and you know, even community groups that are putting together learning pods because the biggest challenge, particularly in disadvantaged areas, is the childcare issue. Um, you know, the, the families, you know, that really need to work and in some instances are holding one or two more jobs can't necessarily afford having the luxury of, of staying at home and, and staying with their children during this very difficult time. We did have the, the benefit of our early learning is, is done between a, a partnership between the Department of Ed and our Department of Human Services. And it's the um, Office of Child Development and Early Learning. They did essentially suspend regulations 
for the registration for daycare and the like in order to allow parents to form learning pods, but they made it very clear that those learning pods were only for this particular school year. They were not supposed to be really to replace schooling. It was really to allow families to have kids sit together in a, in a home so they would have somebody overseeing them, but they would be participating in learning that was taking place through either their district, their charter school, whatever, or private school, whatever schooling that they happened to be enrolled in. The problem with that is that they also expected the same types of pandemic planning and health and safety plans that the traditional school districts and charter schools throughout the state were also required to put together. So that's created a little bit of a ruffle of it. But again, they've given the imprimatur to put them together at a statewide level. But whether that'll translate after the end of the school year, that that remains to be seen. Okay, that's very interesting. Matt, what are you seeing in Rhode Island and New England in terms of cyber charter schools? There are schools that have cyber components to them. Mm -hmm. Um, The 100% cyber school isn't something that we've seen emerge yet. COVID might have catalyzed the development of that at a, at a rate that's a little faster than what we were expecting. Uh, but that's certainly likely to be a component of how we all learn or all of our kids learn down the road. Uh, but something that we're also seeing, well, something that's continued uh, in the homeschooling arena, uh, cooperatives are something that predate COVID. So you had a group of families around a particular community or region that all homeschooled, yet they wanted to have a network of folks similarly situated so that they could get together for certain aspects of their child's development or education. They may get together for, they may have got together for free time, uh, for playtime, for field trips, for some sort of physical activity, for certain types of celebration. But the individual parent was still responsible for the education of their child. Hmm. Um, We've seen that continue. In fact, we've seen that the frequency of things like that increase. What we're starting to see um, evolve, though, is going from that before COVID homeschooling cooperative to more of a now we have one person that's responsible for this component of the education we have another person that's responsible for this component of the education. And that's trending towards private school than the other model of of the homeschooling cooperative. What we're also seeing is, whereas the homeschooling cooperative pre-COVID would have been convening as a group from time to time, maybe throughout a week or throughout a month, that now these cooperatives are getting together daily, and in some instances for the whole day. And as Pat pointed out, that comes with implications from some sort of state authorizer, depending on what your state is. It might be the Department of Children, Youth, and Family. It might be Executive Offices of Health and Human Services, wherever, whatever state you are. But they regulate school-based programs, um, after-school programs, childcare programs. Uh, So folks need to be mindful that when they're convening like this, on a daily basis, and they have X number of kids in their home, and that they're going to be there all day during the school day, uh, that there's, there's likely other licensing requirements that they'll need to pursue. 
in some instances, if we've seen this in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts as well, that they're relaxing some of those standards to address COVID. But in other instances, folks are putting that together. They're having a teacher come in. They're calling them a 1099 independent contractor. And they're likely unaware of the various rules and regulations that they may be operating outside of. Sure. It sounds almost like those are the um, micro schools, like Pat was talking about. And in my research, I found out micro schools are advised. They are basically private schools. If people don't understand that, that they have to kind of almost register as an LLC. And if they have a teacher, you're mentioning an independent contractor, so this may get around it in certain states, but you now have an employee and potentially need to follow state and federal guidelines around having an employee and making decisions as a functioning organization. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, If somebody decides they're forming a micro school, how would you advise them? Should they form a nonprofit? Should they form an LLC? How do they go about doing this correctly? I think, frankly, if you are putting one of these things together as, you know, a loose group of, of folks that are trying to make sure that the child gets an education that you would always benefit from having an LLC or some sort of corporate structure. Because if you're having kids in, in your in your home, you're exposing yourself personally and you're exposing your homeowners, your one asset could end up going down the tubes because you're you're having this situation not thought through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I would always advise, plus it's, it would be easier for you to get the types of insurance that you would see normally for any school, if you wanted to get, you know, particularly sexual molestation, you know, rider insurance, those types of things would really be the structure that you would need through a corporate corporate structure. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it would be a nightmare if you had a child in your home and you think this is all innocent until somebody has an allergy and, and has a fatal reaction right. to something. And then it's not like this casual thing anymore between neighbors. Right. Exactly. And, and also making sure that you're putting together at least some level of understanding from a legal perspective of what this group is supposed to adhere to. Mm-hmm. It's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt. That is the dynamic that I think a lot of folks aren't thinking through. Yeah. I'm having all these kids in my house. I have one kid that's misbehaving. I have one kid that refuses to do his work. You know, we have a family that shows up late for lessons. We have a family that's not showing up, but we're you know somewhat responsible for them. Um, you know, what, what do we do if we have to feed these children? What do we do if we have a child that's disabled? I mean, there's, there's an awful lot of things that need to be thought through that, again, if you have some sort of coherent understanding, which really should be contractual in most respects with these families, then I think that that's, you know, that's something that, that, that's very important because otherwise you're going to be faced in a situation where you have a kid that you can't keep in this pod or this family that's not participating or cooperating in the way that you want. And you're really not going to have the ability to, to do it in a very nice way. It's going to be more confrontational and more difficult to, to essentially exclude anybody from that pod at that point. In having these conversations with folks, you tend to get looks like, are you serious? Yeah. And then the response is, and certainly the states we're talking about, school children or children between certain ages are required to attend school. So if you're going to take the place of your city, your town, your local education agency, your charter school, your state-operated school, your private school, whatever it is, the city, the town, or the state are going to make sure that that program that you're using to replace what is mandated 
by your state government is appropriate. And you wouldn't accept your child going to a public school that didn't have those structures in place. And so the state and your municipality are likely not going to deem it acceptable if you don't have something at least substantially similar in place for the students within your charge. Yeah, so I mean, there, the thing about putting these types of arrangements together is that there really is no, there's no lack of, of materials for parents to look up for curriculum. Um, you know, there's, there's a multitude of websites. There's, there's tons of YouTube videos, any, you know, there, there's, there's really a, a real great wealth of information on how to provide materials and education to your children. What there isn't a wealth of materials on is zoning and health and safety and welfare and background checks and clearances and, and those types of things, which are frankly, particularly from a lawyer's perspective, are, are the most important things. I mean, you know, we, we as lawyers don't, don't usually get into the weeds on curriculum because that's what teachers and educators do best. But in terms of child protection and those types of things, that, that is where there really is what, you know, a lot of very Pollyanna-ish type of, type of people entering into the fray, not realizing that there's a ton of stuff. Like, you know, I, I was reading an article where they were talking about, like, you know, people are putting together these pods in their homes, and now they're being told by their local municipality that according to daycare regulations or regulations for zoning in their particular borough, there needs to be a fire alarm system on every single floor. So if you're in a house that, you know, you don't necessarily have that type of, type of, of you know, wiring in your home. So, I mean, there's just a lot of considerations in terms of that. Okay. Also, what can people expect in terms of, say, as in a lay person, I think I'm just going to keep my child home. I'm not going to put them in school. Who's going to check? It's my child. It's my choice. What can people expect from their state or their district? Is someone going to call them? What are those people going to request in terms of in order to follow the rules, for lack of a better word, and make sure your child is tracking along, there are these measurements and you need to provide this information. What kinds of things can people expect in that case? So in the before times, <laughs> as I call them, um, you know, what truancy statutes do require, at least in Pennsylvania, there is a, a home attendance officer and they do, they do check, um, they, they will do home visits um, to ensure that children are, are going to school one way or the other. They can, they can choose to go to school wherever they want, but they have to make sure that they've, you know, informed the district of that. Um, charter schools too are also now doing more in the truancy realm. We, we've had a sort of a, a shift in how truancy was handled in, in Pennsylvania. Charter schools would report back to the district, usually where the student came from, to make sure that there was communication and the district would take care of those things. But the charter schools are more integrally involved in that now. Religious schools and regular private schools do report attendance mm-hmm. back to the local school district so that everybody's insured where they're, they're going. And home homeschoolers file an affidavit and they report on progress throughout the year and they uh, present a portfolio to the district to make sure that the student is actually performing work. In the pandemic, that's been a whole real shift. Those requirements still aren't there, but once March hit and most schools in this Commonwealth shut down, there is a real concern about the loss of students. I remember reading an article, there's 30% of students in Philadelphia were essentially missing. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know what they were doing. And there was sort of a back and forth on whether they were counting attendance and whether they weren't counting attendance. 
So I think that, you know, right now that's going to be a difficult task into figuring out who's where. Mm -hmm. Um, But typically that is, and now that the school year has begun anew, um, there's been a real renewed effort in making sure that students are in seats, wherever those seats may be. They may be in, you know, in your house or they may be in somebody's garage or however they're handling it. But um, they, they, you know, they're making a concerted effort to make sure that attendance, because it is counted now. Okay. Matt, is that the case in New England as well? That's the case. So I would just add to that, that pre-COVID, if some, if a parent decided that they didn't feel comfortable sending their child to school, you'd initiate some sort of truancy processes. Now you'll still do that. There's just more flexibility or more opportunity for the district and the family to work together to ensure that they can deliver education to the child. Mm -hmm. A year ago, a regular education student taught in the mainstream classroom that didn't come to school each day, that just didn't feel comfortable and didn't otherwise qualify for some sort of alternative plan would be true. And now schools are going to work with families to ensure that they have some sort of program that may have a, a... synchronous digital component to it that may have an asynchronous distance component to it that may have a limited in-person component to it, whatever, so that the child can still access education. If they're still not doing anything, then there's going to be some modified version of what we've always done. And that was to take steps to ensure that the student could access the education and pursue uh, certain processes if they didn't even with all of that. Okay. Some public school districts and charter schools are putting together learning hubs in order to assist on that process because the biggest problem obviously is, 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 you know, making sure the kids are actually pushing the button and they may not have a parent or an adult at home that can help them in that way. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there is some consideration for, for those learning hubs where kids are able to come into the school the school is not in session in that particular building. Like they're not going to do classrooms in the hybrid model, but they, they're at least able to have an adult to consult. And that's being offered to stem this sort of attendance issue. And it's nice to see some of the partnerships between schools and other types of, or other nonprofits so that students and school-age children can have an adult to help guide uh, their education. Because as it's no secret, that's a huge barrier. Yeah. And if if the adult is not already a an educator or a teacher, if it's a parent, um, do they need any credentialing to be able to do the, the homeschooling piece or oversee a learning pod or a micro school? So in Pennsylvania, you in order to homeschool your child, you you would need if you are the, the parent doing it, then you, you need a high school diploma. You would need specialized credentials if your child with special needs. You would have to have some certification or a, a, you know some certified teacher that's assisting you with with the special needs program. Um, you do have the option in homeschooling in Pennsylvania to just have a private tutor come into your home rather than the parent doing it, and that person does have to be certified. Okay. Then, in terms of the learning pods, it really just depends on how those things are structured. Um, again, if they're just supporting daycare or childcare and the students are just accessing their regular education, then they would be getting the certification 
through whatever public school district or private school that they would be attached to. Mm-hmm. Okay. The question is, who's doing the teaching? If it's a school, if it's a district, if it's a private school that's doing the teaching and the adult is there to support what's happening, that's different than if somebody either made application to a school or a district to do it at home, or if you're as a family or group of families hiring somebody to come in and facilitate or deliver instruction. That's when the analysis changes from somebody that's supervising a child to somebody that's educating a child. Sure. Pat, you kind of also teed up another question I have, which is um, special education. So it, it, it sounds like most of the schooling alternatives that you've mentioned are would be state mandated. You'd follow your state's rules. When it comes to special education, are you following your state rules as well as federal guidance or how would that work? Because it's a bit more complicated. In terms of a public school situation where kids are remote learning, then then we are following. We have both federal and state regulations, but the federal law trumps pretty much everything mm-hmm. um, in terms of special needs. Um, and that's being handled you know, through the LEA, which in Pennsylvania is both the... Um, the, the traditional districts and charter schools that varies from state to state as to whether a charter school is actually an LEA or not, but that's being handled, you know, essentially through the federal law that comes through state regulation. Okay. And is that the case for homeschooling as well? Homeschooling is a little bit different in terms of special needs. The homeschooling, once they're outside of the district are not typically being overseen as an LEA, um, they will have to ensure that their child is getting those services mm-hmm. with a certified teacher. The district would would still be required, what's called child fine, would still be required to make sure that the, that the student was actually getting those services, but they would not actually be providing those services. That would be the responsibility of the parent. Okay. Matt, how about Massachusetts and Rhode Island? Similar. So the public school district, whether that's a charter public school or a traditional municipal public school district would be responsible for delivering a free appropriate public school education to the child if they're enrolled there. Uh, if they're not, they'll have obligations to ensure that it's happening, but mm-hmm. a parent can opt to pursue education elsewhere. In all instances, or in, in most instances, the family would likely still have options for some sort of support from from their district. I guess a unique component in Rhode Island, at least, is a Rhode Island independent public charter school is its own LEA. Uh, but if a parent pursued homeschooling when they were enrolled in a charter school, they wouldn't make application to the charter school, even though they're the LEA when the students enrolled there, they would make application to the school committee in the city or town where they resided. And in that instance, if there was a student that was educated pursuant to an IEP, they'd have to present their plan for maintaining an education that addressed those components. Yeah, and and in Pennsylvania, they do, the the parent of a special needs student would have to have the district sign off on whatever plan that they were providing to just to ensure that the child is actually getting everything that they need. Okay. And and similar to what Matt was saying, the parent is approaching the district, not Correct. necessarily the school, a specific Correct. school. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Do you have any other recommendations for what people should be considering when they're thinking about homeschooling, learner, learning pods, hubs, microschools, any of those learning alternatives that people are engaging in? I would spend time learning about the various components in addition to curriculum before pursuing homeschooling, certainly pursuing uh, the education or supervision of somebody else's children. Because as Pat pointed out, delivering curriculum, instructing is hard enough, Mm -hmm. but there's a host of other obligations that one would have when undertaking that sort of effort. And they're burdensome. And if you don't believe that, just go to any charter school, any traditional public school, any private school, and ask them all about the various components of all their operations. They're vast. And just because it's five kids doesn't mean you don't have those obligations. You just don't have economies of scale, which other places might. Yeah. The interesting thing, too, now is what role the teacher plays, too. Because if you're, if you're talking about what essentially looks like a one-room schoolhouse, the teacher really is not only teaching these students various grades, various subjects, but in most respects is acting as the superintendent and the principal. Uh, and the disciplinarian and the school nurse. And, you know, so I think, you know, I think this is going to be an interesting challenge. It can be a really great challenge, frankly, for for teachers, um, you know, and a great opportunity for them. But I mean, I do think that there needs to be some, you know, some real thought process, particularly if you're putting together one, um, as to what, how much support you're going to be providing the teacher um, because that is going to be the ultimate component to your, to your schoolhouse. If you, if you don't, have a great teacher in there if you don't have the ability to really get them to do what they need to do, or they feel frustrated or overworked, how they're going to be compensated, it benefits. I mean, what you know, all these things are 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 are, are going to be a real challenge too because there's such a teacher shortage at this point because they're just burnt out completely given this what's happened in the pandemic. Yeah, and I'm assuming also sick leave. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> any of any of those people can get sick too. Right. Exactly. Um, All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. Uh, This is an interesting conversation. There are interesting alternatives that I know a lot of people are talking about. And um, Pat, I agree with you at one point, you mentioned sort of a a Pollyanna vision. And I've heard it myself in my own neighborhoods. And you find yourself prone to making these crazy offers (laughs) and then thinking about it again, like, wait a minute. Um, So this is very helpful. and, And I think parents and educators would find it interesting. So I appreciate your time. Thank you. Great. Thanks, everybody. This was fun. Pat is a nationally recognized education lawyer in Philadelphia. She advises charter, private, and traditional public schools from application through startup and daily operations. In addition, Pat is a member of the National Litigation Council for the National Alliance of Public Charter Schools, the Alliance of Public Charter School Attorneys, and the Pennsylvania Association of Independent Schools. For more information about Pat or to contact her, please see her bio at conradobrien.com. For more information and other podcasts or client alerts, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com 
or follow us on social media by searching for Barton Gilman. Thank you for joining us today. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.